What is up, everyone? I hope you're having a wonderful 2023. Inside the War Room is, of course, here, ready to go. A lot of shows this year to put out. Two things you can do to support us. One, give a five-star rating wherever you listen to this podcast. A like, a thumbs up, subscribe, whatever that looks like on your platform. We would greatly appreciate it. Two, if you want to support the show, you can do that by going to warroommedia.com. That keeps the ads off. That keeps us rolling. It covers our cost. We would really, really appreciate that. Warroommedia.com. Monica, welcome to the War Room. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I don't think we've done a... Well, I say that. We've released one here recently, but I haven't recorded one um, about this era in history, um, at least loosely around this era of history in some time. So it's good to talk about uh, JFK and the impact of this because it's an interesting period of history. And I'm curious, uh, for so long... I thought World War II was the most fascinating point in American history. And then now I've gotten to this kind of Cold War fever, if you will, where I love studying and researching and reading about this era and the impact it's had. So what got you into this era of history? Well, so I've had a curiosity in John F. Kennedy since I was a little kid. Um, So I saw his civil rights speech, which had really impressed me as a little kid because I thought, here's someone who's really you know, thoughtful and understanding and compassionate and maybe willing to take a stand on a controversial issue. But then I had also heard, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So I had also heard a lot of negative stories about him in the press, you know, that he was um, a drug addict, a womanizer, you know, he was trying to kill Castro, he was making deals with the mob. And as a little kid, you know, everything is black and white. There's no complexity in human beings. And certainly I had no concept of propaganda back then either. So I was a bit confused as a little kid as to who he was, Um, you know, but it really piqued my curiosity. Like I wanted to understand who this person was, but it was a really distant interest. I wasn't reading any books or anything like that. But as I kind of grew older, I became... I guess more questioning and more skeptical. There was a lot of things happening that I didn't really understand. Um, I didn't really like either political party. So it seemed like we were going from Democrat to Republican to Democrat to Republican. And at least from my perspective, you know, not much seemed to change. Like both sides seemed to be corrupt and not trustworthy. And so I guess I was trying to understand more about how we got here like was our political system always this way you know is that just the way it is or did we have leaders you know once upon a time that we could really look up to and because you know as a little kid I had admired JFK it kind of occurred to me that you know maybe if I want to try to understand today better and particularly our political system and American I guess power and leadership maybe the place to start is to study Kennedy because he's the one that got assassinated And so I wanted to understand maybe, you know, what kind of factors may have impacted his assassination or led to his assassination or, you know, what was he doing? Was he a threat to the establishment? Was he not a threat? Those kind of things kind of came into my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I began like delving into his presidency slowly. It was a long process. Like the first book I read was in 2008. But then as I learned more, I kind of wanted to learn more like it. You know, the more I learned about him, the more I wanted to learn about him. And it got to a point where, you know, one day I kind of realized, you know, like, holy crap, I know quite a bit. And so I thought, well, let me just document it. So if other people want a quick like 101 crash course on JFK, 
you know, they don't necessarily have to do the deep dive that I did because obviously most people are not going to deep dive on most topics because mm-hmm. there isn't enough time in the day. So that's kind of what led me to kind of write the book. Okay, that's helpful. Um, and, and so you, you, yeah, JFK does kind of sit in the interesting crux of U.S. history because um, shortly after his death, relatively speaking, you know, Watergate happens. Um, and so the, how the media covers the presidency um, dramatically changes. Um, both Kennedy, FDR, um, before him, and other presidents before him, how the media covered and how the, the American citizens, it seems, thought about the presidency um, was slightly different. Does that make it easier or harder to go back and try to determine who he was because of the way the media's coverage has shift, shifted so much around the Oval Office? Um. I think you have to really, no matter whether it's Kennedy or someone else, you have to rely as much as possible on primary sources. Um, You know, so the declassified letters and meeting notes and, you know, the people that were actually working with him and that knew him well and try to rely as little as possible on the mainstream media. Um, And Kennedy actually made a comment, um, I think it was like in 61 or something, and he said, you know, the press, everything they write about my administration is so inaccurate. It makes you wonder how historians are going to write about this period of time. And I think that impacted his decision to record a lot of his telephone conversations and meetings. So you can actually listen firsthand to those meetings because he felt that they weren't going to, if they weren't portraying that period in history accurately then, then they certainly weren't going to portray it accurately in the future. And he even made the comment, is everything I know about history wrong? And so I think all of us have to ask that question is, you know, is the lens that we view history through accurate or inaccurate, you know, if we're only relying on secondhand sources? So I tried as much as possible to rely on firsthand sources. Like I listened to all his press conferences. I listened to all his speeches things of that nature. You know, I read a lot of his letters, et cetera. Um, But it is difficult because you don't know. I mean, it's hard to even know what the truth is today, let alone what it was 60 years ago. Yeah, I'm struck by the primary sources debate because um, like you, I I agree that we have to read primary sources. Um, And yet it's, it's tough because primary sources, like any source, still has a bias. And so I'm thinking about like, you know, um, reading through Grant's memoirs and kind of how he talked about stuff. And some of the stuff I found to be quite, you know, fascinating and whatnot. But then you will read people who said, you know, he was a you know potential drunk or alcoholic or however they want to phrase that. Of course, he doesn't mention any of that. So, you know, if you read Grant's memoirs, it's like, okay, well, that was, that was interesting. It was a really good read as a primary source. Um, but the amount of primary sources you'd have to read around that, to your point, is a tremendous amount to to start to get a full view of who Grant was. And the same thing about Kennedy, it, and it is an interesting question, which is why I like talking about these subjects over and over and over again. Because each historian, each expert, is going to have a slightly different take. They're going to emphasize um, one record over the other. They're going to catch on something. They have different perspective and. That's part, I think, of of history that we're probably learning now, or maybe it's always been around, but we hadn't thought about it as much, is that you can't write a definitive history about just about anything because it's too much work. It's too much work. And so take take forever. So having people come and and unearth and talk about what they think the the narrative is or should be is probably how we have to go about correcting maybe um, some of the errors of the past, it would seem. 
Yeah, no, it is difficult. I mean, it's just the amount of, inf- you know, because if you really wanted to do like a 100% study of Kennedy's presidency, you would literally have to be there every minute of every day of those three years, which nobody, no human being can do. And not only from his perspective, but from everyone else, everyone else's perspective in his administration, right? So you've got like, you literally have to be there every minute of every day for dozens of people that experience that. And it's just, you know, it's impossible. So I think, you know, you just have to study it as best you can and try to get to the key moments as best you can to try to, you know, figure out who this person was and what that era was. But yeah, it's really challenging. I, I agree for sure. So you talked about this narratives around Kennedy. Um, some of these we talked on the show before about, um, about maybe he's trying to have, at least the CIA is trying to have Castro assassinated the same day that he's assassinated. They're talking to the, um, they're talking about at least, um, you know, obviously the womanizing um, and, and, and the various things, of course, assassination. Um, how do you, you, you mentioned kind of hearing things, seeing the speech that impacted you, uh, and then trying to put him in a proper context. What was that journey like trying to, deal with the the complex nature of of him which is you know we're all complex but how was that trying to balance uh the good and the bad with kennedy well i like i said i relied on primary sources so i kind of don't take very seriously a lot of the mainstream media image of him and it's not that i think it's necessarily all false because but more so that it's propaganda. So propaganda can be true or false or anywhere in between, but the the purpose of propaganda is to propagate. So from my perspective, you know, there's been a propaganda cam- campaign involving him for, for decades, really, to portray him in a superficial light, um, you know, because the idea is to make him, make it look like not much changed between Kennedy and Johnson, right? You want to portray him in a superficial way, you want to make his life as meaningless as possible in a way so that then his assassination becomes equally meaningless. So I kind of tried to stay away from all that propaganda. And I also stayed away from his personal life. So there is nothing in my book about his personal life whatsoever. And what I focused on was on his policies. So my book is um, purely a policy book and an idea book. So it's not just his policies I focus on, but I focus on him ideologically. Like who was he? as a person ideologically, what were his views about, you know, about human society, about global society, about America, about all these various topics, right? So I quote him extensively in the book, but it's all about, you know, his views about the world, his views about how society should be organized, and then all the various policies that he dealt with is what I deal with in the book. Um, So there is no I don't try to delve into good or bad or anything like that. And I don't delve into his personal life. I just look at, you know, what was he doing? Like, what were his policies? What was he trying to achieve? Who was he working for? You know, who was he working against? Those kinds of things. Mm. So, how? yeah, so that's fascinating. So how do you balance, um, you know, what, what, what a Kennedy or anyone might say publicly uh, in a speech or uh, what we believe that they believe? Um, versus what you might find behind the curtain, which could contradict what they're publicly saying. So how do you strike that balance of um, knowing when to trust what they're saying publicly, I guess is the way to put it. Um, I think you have to compare their public and their private, um, I guess, behavior. So you have to look at, you know, what were they writing in private letters that, you know, 
only got declassified decades later? What were they saying in private meetings? What policies were they pursuing? And does that match with their public rhetoric is what you kind of have to compare? Because obviously every politician is going to have rhetoric and and Kennedy obviously is included in that. So you kind of have to compare how closely does their rhetoric align to what they were actually doing? And then you can kind of see, you know, what's sincere or what's more just kind of, you know, talk, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. So on the policy stuff, this is, this is me asking from ignorance. Um, one of the things that, that people will say today, you hear is, uh, to the propaganda piece, <laughs> they'll say is that Kennedy wouldn't be accepted by modern day Democrat, Democrats. He, he, he would be more conservative by modern standards. Uh, do you find that to generally be true that um, the parties have shifted a lot or that what, what he was talking about back then um, might not be um, as blue as it was back then? Or would you say, no, 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 he was actually more of a progressive for his time and would, would fit in well with the party today? Um, I think in my personal opinion, he doesn't have anything in common with the Democrats of today. Um, I'm not a fan of the Democrats today. For me, Kennedy was like a mix of a libertarian and a socialist. He was a populist. So he was working for the people. He wasn't working for those in wealth and power. And as a populist, he had a a very varied ideology. So he definitely believed in progressive concepts like um, Social Security and Medicare and unemployment, education, those kinds of things. So he definitely believed in government being there to give people a safety net, being there to assist people. But he also was um, had a huge streak of like self-determination and um, libertarianism in the sense that he didn't think that the government should be, you know, people's father, so to speak, or like the government should not. Be. He was very anti-authoritarian. So in my opinion, I don't believe he would have supported the authoritarian policies that the Democrats have been pushing these last few years. Um, obviously, I can't speak for him, but he was very much about individual choice, about self-determination, about, you know, people making their own decisions, about countries making their own decisions. And he said often, you know, our rights come from God, not from the state. So I don't think he relates to Democrats today. To me, Democrats today aren't very populist. They're not really on the side of the people. They're serving, you know, in various industries. And, you know, they may like talk more about being on the side of the people than Republicans, but I don't think they really are. I think they're serving industries. Maybe they're different industries than the Republicans serve. Um, You know, but Republicans are more libertarian. And I think Kennedy had a huge libertarian streak in him. So I don't think he's either because I don't think either party represents him today. Um, But I agree, there's just been a massive shift. And that motivated me to study Kennedy because I was like, why don't I align with either party? You know what I mean? Why, you know, I don't know, there was there's just such a left right division in America. And I was trying to understand, like, why is it this way, you know, really should be top versus bottom and not left versus right? Because I think most people are populist. They may have different ideas on what that is, but they want, you know, good for everyone. And so it seems like we've kind of lost that populist mentality in the U.S. on both sides, um, in my opinion. And that's what Kennedy was like. His approval rating was 70 percent. I can't fathom any politician or any American president today having a 70 percent approval rating, you know, and being admired by both sides. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's. <laughs> but but if I understand correctly, at the time of his death, his reelection wasn't um, wasn't a sure thing. Is that is that true or not? Um, no, I would say it's true to an extent. Like he definitely got hurt himself a little bit in the last year, and I would say for two reasons really. One is the civil rights. So he, um, at the beginning of '63, I think his aru- approval rating was like seventy five percent or something really high. And I think by the time of his death, it might have been like 60% or 59. Um, it dipped quite a bit um, after he gave his civil rights speech. It dipped like 10%. And the other thing he was really pushing is good relations with the Soviets in his last year. So he gave his like famous, or I don't know how famous it is, but it's famous in the research community, his um, peace speech in June of 1963, you know, where he humanized the other side. And he said, you know, we need to make peace with the Soviets, et cetera. You know, they're just like us. And so between his push of civil rights and his, um, I guess, stepping away and really trying to end the Cold War, I think, you know, he definitely lost some people in that um, during that last year. But I think he, you know, he still had a, a really high approval rating. And I think he was starting to gain those people back, like the people were starting to go with him. So I do think he would have won re-election, but I agree with you that nothing is ever guaranteed or certain. I mean, you don't know what would have happened that last year, but um, but I think he would have won re-election. So going back to kind of some of the um, the things that he did that you, that resonated, what were some of the? You know, I mean, we all kind of can quote, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what were, what were some of the more impactful speeches that he had um, during his career that maybe don't get the attention like that one does? Um, So his peace speech, I think, is probably the most important speech he ever gave. Um, You know, he really talked about the need for disarmament, the need for a nuclear test ban treaty, which he eventually got, the need to make peace with our neighbors. The civil rights speech is another major one. One that is, um, he actually gave as a senator in 1957 on Algeria, where he actually called out not just Soviet imperialism, but Western imperialism as well. Um, You know, and he said these third world countries want to be independent. They want to make their own decisions. And at that time, uh, Algeria was a colony of France. So he was saying France needs to grant Algeria their independence. Um, So he gave a lot of speeches about third world nationalism, um, which I think not many people know about, which I think are very critical and important. Um, even in 63 in the UN, he gave another speech about, you know, the need for peace and good relations with the Soviets. This was September of 63 and September of 61. He gave another, a speech about disarmament at the UN, which I think doesn't get much attention today. Um, so he had a lot of really impressive speeches, I think. And, you know, he gave one at Yale university about the myth of economics, about how the way we understand our society and our economic system is based on myths, Um, you know, and he's like, there's myths everywhere surrounding us, you know, and he says the myth is even more dangerous than the lie, you know, and that we've got to figure out how to get away from basing our society on myths, you know, and he says, everybody loves the comfort of opinion, but they don't like the discomfort of thought. So really looking at things independently and not just basing them on what society has said about them for decades, um, yeah, I mean, this it just could go on and on. But yeah, he gave a lot of speeches and he was very involved in the writing of his speeches. Um, so that one at Yale about economics, I think he wrote the majority of that speech on his own. 
Um, in other speeches, you know, Ted Sorensen, who was his key speechwriting guy, might do the initial draft, but then Kennedy would go in and make a lot of changes and make a lot of updates. So he was in a lot of control over his speeches. I'm not sure that that's the case today. I think today presidents tend to have like a whole team of speechwriters versus like one or two guys that they really trust. And I don't think they're necessarily going in there and making a lot of modifications and whatnot like Kennedy did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you that. I was curious about how much of um, his speeches he wrote. So it's interesting. What do we know from the the kind of primary source angle of what he thought of his, his you know his wife, children? What were his thoughts about them? Oh, I think he loved them dearly, and I think and I Jackie loved him dearly as well. So I listened to her whole oral history, and it's about eight to ten hours long, and you could like see the love she had for him and the love he had for her. Um, so yeah, no, I think they had a very strong bond. And so that kind of goes to this propaganda narrative that you're talking about earlier about maybe um, Kennedy and, and the womanizing, um, but but at least there's a lot of records or evidence that shows that he did seem to have strong feelings for her as well. Oh, yes, for sure. And she for him, like both ways. And, and so um, what was his family life like outside of the presidency? So I, again, I didn't go into his personal life at all in my book, um, you know, but he adored his children. Like, you know, I think part of the reason he wanted to pursue good relations with the Soviets and part of the reason he wanted to pursue disarmament, particularly of nuclear weapons. So he's very committed to um, trying to find some way to disarm nuclear weapons. And when he would talk about those things, he would talk about his children and not just his his children but all the children of the world, you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he's like, it doesn't, he was talking to Bobby, I think, and he's like, it doesn't really matter if you or I die, but all the children who haven't had a chance to live their lives, who have no idea what's even going on right now, you know, they have a, they have the right to live their lives in peace, you know, and he called peace a human right in his uh, 1963 peace speech. So, you know, I think he was thinking about not only his children, but all children and how I think innocent they are. And how vulnerable they are to decisions by these powerful people, politicians or whatnot, and how it's really not fair to them. You know, and he said children have no lobby in Washington and their interests have no lobby, you know. And he said in general, like the vast majority of Americans aren't represented in Washington, you know, that only like 13 or 14 million Americans have the resources to have representatives in Washington to push their interests and the interests of all the other Americans are the responsibility of the president of the United States. So he was really trying to cater to the interests of society as a whole. And another thing he said is, you know, the job of a president is to protect um, protect people against special interests. So to protect the public interest against narrow private interests that operate in our society. So he saw that as his job to protect against special interests, whereas I would argue today Many politicians view their jobs as catering to special interests, you know, catering to the people that finance their campaigns and might finance their future campaigns. So he had a very different outlook, I think, than most politicians do today. Who were, or who was or were some of the people that he corresponded with that kind of caught you off guard or, or some of the conversations that maybe you go, oh, wow, I didn't I didn't realize that, um, you know, in this interaction with insert person here that he, he he said these things or thought these things. Um, so he had, uh, 
a lot of letters with Khrushchev, which was the Soviet leader, and they were actually private letters. They didn't go through the State Department. So that really surprised me that they had this really unique and private one-on-one communication and that Kennedy felt he didn't, not that he could have maybe couldn't trust, but you know, he wanted to have these conversations without the bureaucracy getting in the way or giving their input or whatnot. He also had a lot of tense letters with David Ben-Gurion, who was the Israeli prime minister, who actually ended up resigning because of the tension with Kennedy. Um, You know, and he had a lot of letters with um, third world leaders. So he was really trying to support third world nationalism. So he actually had more African heads of state visit him than and per month, like almost one per month, he averaged more than any president in history. So like every month there'd be some other like head of state from Africa visiting the White House, you know, so he gave tons and tons of attention to countries that we don't really pay attention to today. You know, like our president today may meet with some key leaders from the major countries or from the European allies or whatever, But Kennedy was like really meeting with like so many leaders across the globe that are typically ignored. Yeah, I didn't realize all the uh, the Africa connections there as well. That's interesting because I know that like South Africa had um, strong ties to Castro, um, but I didn't realize that Kennedy had ties across the continent. Um, Yes, everywhere except South Africa. There was actually rumblings in the South African government that Kennedy might militarily intervene and cause problems for them. Now, those were overblown. He was never going to do that. But I think they had those fears because he was so supportive of all the other African countries. And he compared, you know, the anti-colonial movements in Africa to the American Revolution. And so a lot of this worried South African leaders. Um, And he did do like an arms embargo, I think, towards them. So um, and he wouldn't like invite them to the White House or anything like that. Um, but all the other African countries, you know, he had great relations with. Okay. And, and so in the title of the book, it, it's, you know, America's last president. So first off, that's an interesting way to phrase it. The last president, obviously we know there's something behind that. And then you say what the world lost when lost JFK. So maybe unpack kind of why you deem him the last president. And then in the description of the book, you talk about, you know, just kind of, um, the, the, who he was a little bit. So why do you think of him in such high regard, maybe compared to other presidents? Um, so he's the only president. Now I haven't studied all the presidents in like the 1800s and, you know, all the earlier eras, but certainly in my lifetime, there's no president that I've even remotely connected with, or even I would say respected. Like I just felt they were all, you know, serving wealth and power and special interests. And they all just seemed so corrupt. And and like I said, I was really disillusioned with both parties. So I didn't like any American politician. I won't say any, I think there's, you know, every now and then you get a decent congressman or senator, but in general, like I was just very disillusioned. And so Kennedy was the last one to me who really served the public, you know, like I, like he said in that speech, like it's the president's job to protect the public from special interests and to serve the public and not like all the lobby groups in Washington, right? So he was the last one for me that was really doing the job of a president, you know, that was catering to everyone, that really cared about the country, you know, that put America first, that put the American people first, et cetera. Um, You know, whereas I think after him, it just kind of became so corrupt and, and partly because of his assassination. I mean, when you have you know, that kind of assassination, like it just leads to, and you never really have a proper truth and reconciliation over that. 
it just feeds into corruption. And it's that corruption has just grown and grown and grown over the decades. And, you know, to the point where we just have presidents that are just, I don't know, to me, it's like professional wrestling. It's just like a, a clown show. I don't know. And that's just my view. You know, other people may disagree, but, and that's kind of how I termed it America's last president. And, and again, we went from like someone who had a 70% approval rating to no president has even surpassed a 50% average approval since Bill Clinton, you know, so it's been over 20 years since any president has even, whether Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter, that's even surpassed a 50% approval rating. So for me, you know, he really symbolized like the American ideal or the height of what America could be. And since then, it's kind of been all downhill. And And then I subtitled it, What the World Lost When It Lost John F. Kennedy, because I wanted people to understand that his death matters and that a lot was lost when he died so it wasn't you know i think the um the mainstream media image seems wants to convey that you know there was continuity between kennedy and johnson his death doesn't really matter because nothing changed and what i wanted to convey in my book is no actually everything changed you know especially around foreign policy but domestic policy as well and all the things that Kennedy was doing, you know, the ways he was standing up to industry, the ways he was standing up to foreign leaders, the ways he was standing up to Wall Street, whatever it may be, the, the military, the CIA just goes on and on that, you know, we really lost a powerful leader, a courageous leader and someone who is really on the side of the public, whether you were Democrat or Republican, didn't matter. He wasn't serving one base. He wasn't serving special interests. He was serving everyone in America. You mentioned the change in policy, especially foreign policy. What would have been some of the biggest differences between him and LBJ? Okay, so Kennedy was um, not a big fan of the Cold War. He was not a big fan of war in general. So I don't think we would have had the Vietnam War. There was actually like an overthrow, a coup in Indonesia where like a million peasants got slaughtered. You know, Kennedy was supportive of the leader of Indonesia. So that I don't think that coup would have happened. In the Congo, you know, Kennedy was supporting like a centrist constitutional government. After that, Johnson installed like a military dictatorship. And so like the people of Congo have been destitute ever since. You know, Kennedy was really hard on Israel. Like he, you know, didn't want them to build nuclear weapons. He supported, you know, Palestinian right of return. He wanted the Israeli lobby to register as a foreign agent all these things. And he, he wanted, you know, really good relations with all the Arab, Arab countries. So, and, and Israel as well, like he wanted good relations with everybody. Um, whereas Johnson really catered to Israel. Um, it just goes on and on. I mean, they were completely different Latin America, you know, Kennedy was and Africa. Like I said, Kennedy visited all the African heads of state. He gave them tons and tons of money, you know, by 1969, I think we were giving something like 20% of the amount of money that Kennedy gave to Africa. Um, you know, Latin America, Kennedy did the Alliance for Progress, where he was really trying to help those countries become self-sufficient and not so reliant on a primary export, you know, but really grow their own economies. Whereas when Johnson came in, he supported, you know, military coups, et cetera. So like there was a military coup in Brazil in January, there was actually one um, right before Kennedy died in Dominican Republic, and Kennedy cut off relations formally with the Dominican Republic because of that coup. And then Johnson came in, and when the Dominican Republic tried to reinstall a constitutional leader, Johnson sent in the military to basically ensure that the military coup stays more in place, because they had a very different view of the Cold War. So 
Johnson had the typical American view where we just want to stamp out communism. We don't care if it's through military dictators, whatever, as long as it's not communist, we're good. Whereas Kennedy wanted to win the Cold War um, by supporting third world nationalism. So, you know, instead of taking over the Congo by the, with the military or taking over Brazil with the military or whatever, he wanted to support leaders that were nationalists that would support their own countries and their own country's independence, again, including obviously against communism. But he didn't want either imperialism. This kind of goes back to that 1957 Algeria speech where he didn't want Soviet imperialism and he didn't want Western imperialism. You know, so Kennedy does attack Soviet imperialism a lot. So people kind of view him as your typical Cold Warrior, but people have to understand he also was not a fan of Western imperialism or American imperialism. He didn't want any kind of imperialism. So he wanted all these nations to have their own independence and not be subservient to either side. So he had very different views of the, of the Cold War than your typical Cold Warrior, even though he's portrayed by many as, as a typical Cold Warrior, because he did speak against the Soviet system, obviously. I mean, he was not a fan of communism in any way, shape, or form. Um, but there's there's a, a lot of nuance to his views that I think people don't understand. What's the one unanswered question that you left after research, research, researching this book? Uh, that's a good question. The one unanswered question. <laughs> I guess knowing definitively what would have happened, you know, like we know that a lot of policies changed, um, but we don't know for sure for a hundred percent, you know, what other good things Kennedy might've done. Like, you know, like he, for example, um, when the whole DDT came up, Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring, you know, talking about the danger of pesticides to human health and to the environment and, in middle of 63, you know, and Kennedy did a study and he actually didn't go to the USDA because he felt they were in bed with the chemical chemical industry and the USDA saw Carson as a public relations problem. So Kennedy set up his own committee to study the health impacts of pesticides. And in the middle of 63 or May of 63, he came out a report with a report and he said, you know what, Carson was right. These mm. things are causing great human health and environmental health. And his um, science advisor, Jerome Wiesner, said they're even more dangerous to human health than the fallout from nuclear testing. So things like that, like, you know, that report came out with a bunch of recommendations. You know, obviously, Kennedy died later in 63. But, you know, would he have pursued those? I think so. He said he wanted to focus on poverty and environmental issues in 1964. You know, and so what other issues might have come up that he would have dealt with that we don't even know about? Because, you know, pesticides was not something he, you know, it's not like he set out at right. the beginning of 61 and says, I'm going to deal with pesticides. It was somebody wrote a book and he listened to her, you know, because he he gave this consumer rights pledge where he's like, we have to listen to consumers. They have a voice. If they're concerned about the safety of a product, it's our job to listen to them. And he listened to her and he realized that she was right. And he was, you know, getting ready to do something about it. Obviously he died, but we don't know what else would have happened in the later 60s that um, what other issues, what other corruption may have come up that he would have responded to and addressed. There's just no possible way of knowing. And then, of course, after that, we don't know if Bobby would have been elected president. Like, so the whole trajectory of American history, you know, could have possibly been different, you know, because RFK was also, you know, murdered on his way to running for president. So, you know, you could have had 16 years of 
what I would call a very uncorrupt leadership, a very populist leadership, you know, a very anti-imperialist leadership versus what we had. And, you know, we could have taken potentially a different course. Um, so, yeah, it would be nice to see what would have happened. But, I mean, that's something we'll never see. And, and, and if you could ask JFK one question, what would you ask him? Oh, wow. Ah, you're asking good questions. Um, if I could ask him one question. Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, I guess maybe um, I'm trying to think. Um, While you're thinking, I will give you mine. I would ask him how close does he think we were to nuclear war? Like, did he like, I would be like, not what he said publicly, like in his heart of hearts, how how close does he think we really were? I would be curious to hear his honest opinion on that. I know in Berlin, Bobby thought it was one in five. And mm-hmm. I think Cuban Missile Crisis, they said one in two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think pretty damn close. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, one in two is like, you know. Um, yeah, one in two is that's, that's 50%. So, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to hear him just to, the truth serial in him to see what he'd say. If he'd say one in five, one in two, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd be curious. I guess I would ask Kennedy what gave him the strength to have to have the courage he did. Mm. Like, where did that courage come from? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what I would ask him. Okay. All right. Well, we will link to the book America's Last President: What the World Lost When It When It Lost John F. Kennedy. Um, where else would you like us to send people to? Uh, not just the book. I'm actually not online. I don't. I'm not on social media. So. Okay. Awesome. We, we we will link to the book and uh, any future projects or JFK? Uh, uh, no, not at the moment. All right. Well, thank you so much and best of luck on the book. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.